Well, thank you, worship team. And take your Bibles and turn with me again to the book of Ezra, Ezra chapter 7. If you're using one of our Bibles here, turn to page 379. 379. When you have a decision and you want to make the right decision, do you believe that God personally guides our decisions? That He is personally involved in those important steps? Or are we kind of on our own and what happens, happens? If you believe that God's involved in our decision-making, you would have to say that you believe that God is guiding, shaping circumstances before you make that decision, and that then God is guiding and controlling circumstances as a result of that decision. You're really kind of all in or not if God makes or God guides your decisions. Uh, The unbelieving world might scoff at the idea that there's a God who actually is involved in the details of our life. What do you think? There's a phrase that's going to be repeated in our passage today and our study next week, chapters 7 and 8 of Ezra, six times, three times in each chapter. The phrase is, the hand of God. Ezra says, the hand of God was with me. The hand of God was with us. It tells you what Ezra believes. He believes that God was guiding those decisions and shaping those circumstances. And he had a very big decision to make personally. Theologian J.I. Packer said this, What matters supremely is not the fact that I know God, but the larger fact which underlies it, the fact that he knows me. So it's one thing for us to know about Almighty God, but to then realize that he knows me and my circumstances. That's that's pretty incredible. So I hope that we uh, can leave today with the confidence that God truly knows us and is involved in those decisions, circumstances in our life. Verses 1 through 10 of chapter 7 are a summary, really, of everything that happens in these two chapters. So we kind of get the, the big view of what happens, and then these chapters unfold the details. Uh, the first thing we're going to discover in these verses is that God's hand directs us when we are committed to God's word. God's hand directs us when we're committed to God's word. Verse 1. After these things, during the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, son of Sariah, the son of Azariah, and there's a long list of names, the sentence ends in verse 6. This Ezra came up from Babylon. That's the end of the sentence. So it's saying Ezra came up from Babylon, and the context is he came up from Babylon and came to Jerusalem. That's the big decision on the horizon here. That's that's the context of what decision Ezra had to make. Would he leave Babylon and go to Jerusalem? Verse 1 says, after these things. It's kind of vague, but... 
we find historically that after these things, there is a, is referring to a 57 year gap between the end of chapter 6 and beginning of chapter 7. A seven year gap. Now, that's not obvious to us, but any of the Jews who first read the book of Ezra, it was like, oh yeah, because it's Artaxerxes, right? It's like we know, we have some general idea that President John F. Kennedy, that was like 50-some years ago, and they knew that the events of, of King Darius of Persia in chapter 6, well, yeah, that's 50-some years ago. To us, it's not so obvious. So let's get a little bit of a, a context again of the history behind these two chapters. The, there were Babylonian kings. Nebuchadnezzar was the most notable. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar was the one who came in and uh, was God's hand of discipline in a cruel way uh, on Jerusalem and Israel. And so he brought the exiles. He took these prisoners and took tens of thousands of Jews to Babylon, ending in some 20-year span at which time he destroyed the temple, burnt the temple down. So there was a 70-year captivity that culminated where we began our study in Ezra it be, in, in 536 B.C. as Cyrus, now the Persians, took over from the Babylonians, conquered the Babylonians. Cyrus was very differently minded, and he actually, we found, was moved by God, stirred by God to send Jews back to Jerusalem to do what? to do exactly what God had put on the heart of Zerubbabel and the high priest Joshua to do, to go and rebuild the temple. And so in the first six chapters, we have been studying how God has moved in the, in the, in the exiles who returned and finally got the temple rebuilt in 516 B.C. under the reign of King Darius. So today the story picks up about the return of Ezra, it's 458 B.C. We know that because Artaxerxes is a king, and we know which year of his reign uh, this all happened. So there were some 57 years. And if you add the 20 or so years, oh, I'm sorry. And what happened during those years was it wasn't completely silent. There was another biblical thing that happened because the book of Ezra, Esther rather, Esther takes place in that 57-year gap. I've made a little note in my Bible between chapter 6 and 7 that says Esther fits here. <laughs> Because that five years or so of, of what you read in the book of Esther, where she was the queen of King Xerxes, is something else God was sovereignly doing during that time. So, our study of Ezra covers those 57 years and about another 20 years, so you have about 77 years. This is the, the, the yellow, is the, 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 whatever color that is, is the, uh, is the book of Ezra. So we know we're going from here to there. So we're really spanning some 80 years when we study the book of Ezra. Ezra is now the main character. Uh, Zerubbabel was the first one, now Ezra. The book is called Ezra because it is most likely that Ezra wrote the book. So when he was writing the first six chapters, he was recording history. When he's writing chapters 7 through 10, he is... Um, uh, describing current events to him. In fact, you'll even find in chapter 7 and 8 he uses the term I and me. It's, about, it's autobiographical. As we study this chapter today, if you've been here throughout the study of Ezra, you might think, now wait a minute, didn't we study this already? You know, the king and what he did? <laughs> no, but 57 or almost 80 years later, what God is doing through King Artaxerxes parallels 
exactly what he did in the heart of King Cyrus that time before. Have you noticed sometimes patterns of what God does in your life? Don't be surprised when there's a similar uh, pattern. So, verse 6 says, this Ezra came up from Babylon. Which one? The one that had, was a part of this line of descendants, verses 1 through 6. It's a long, long sentence. There are some 16 names. And it takes you back to, end of verse 5, Aaron, the chief priest. Aaron was the brother of Moses. So if you think back in your, in your Bible history, you realize, wait a minute, we're going a whole thousand years back to the time of Moses. 1400-something B.C., now to 400 B.C. Sixteen names doesn't account for a thousand years. But you need to understand that uh, in ancient times, and specifically Hebrew genealogies, were not uh, complete to be accurate. And the little phrase, the son of, is a term that simply means a male descendant of. And so there are many skipped generations, but it is highlighted by some of the, actually the best known priests in the Old Testament stories. But so uh, it takes us back to Aaron and... uh, the name of, of what seems to be to us, Ezra's father, is probably his great-grandfather, possibly even great-great-grandfather, but he is indeed a male descendant of Sereya. Sereya uh, died 128 years before Ezra 7.1. And we know exactly when he died because Second Kings 25, that records the destruction of Jerusalem, lists him among the leaders who were taken prisoner by Nebuchadnezzar's commander and taken to uh, Babylon and executed. So that's, that's the ancestry, that's the story that Ezra grows up learning, that his great-great or great-great-grandfather was a priest who was executed. And so he finds out that he is a priest by descent. Now, if you think about the decision-making of Ezra, He grows up knowing he is a priest. He is in the line of the chief priests. And yet, where is he? He's in Persia. Where do priests function? Where do they do their ministry? At the temple. There is no temple in Persia. The temple, though, he knows, has been rebuilt back in Jerusalem 57 years earlier. It was completed, but he has no priestly ministry. So what does he spend his adult life doing up till this point? Verse 6 tells us, this Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a teacher, well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. So while he could not function in a priestly way without a temple, he could devote himself to learning the word of God. And that's exactly what he did. He was a teacher, or the term you may have is scribe, well-versed, skilled. Um, the, the term scribe often meant in Old Testament days like just someone who made, probably copied the scriptures so that the worn-out copy could be replaced. But maybe it's because of Ezra it had come to mean someone who was understanding scripture and really responsible for interpreting it for the people. The term scribe in the New Testament, four or five centuries later, in the time of Jesus, is kind of like you know the scribes and Pharisees, because it had deteriorated into kind of a legalistic detail uh, research ally of the legalistic Pharisees, you could say. 
And so it wasn't so spiritual. But, but this Ezra was a proper scribe, a scholar, a teacher with a passion for the word of God. As you think about decision-making, the most fundamental question we'll see in this passage today is, are you a person who wants to hear from God through his word? Are you a person committed to knowing and hearing of God in the scriptures? The reality is that God is personally involved. He is infinite And so he can be involved in you and you and you, and he can be involved in each of us personally. He is personally involved, but we will not even be aware of it unless we have begun to learn how God thinks and how God works. And we're going to find that out right here. This, as you, as, you, as you think, why, why do I invest in just learning, you know, the stuff that happened in the Old Testament and things are written? It's because you are learning how God thinks. And that's where you begin to connect the dots between what's happening in your life specifically and the way you have come to realize these are the kind of things God does. So, invest in the Word of God. Last part of verse 6. The king had granted him everything he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. In other words, kind of a summary statement. Everything worked out in this huge decision For one main reason, it's because God's hand is the first of six references. God's hand was upon him, and he knew that. So how did that play out? Here's the summary. Some of the Israelites, including priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, and temple servants, also came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. So he came with a group. That'll be more part of the study next week. Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in the fifth month of the seventh year of the king. He had begun his journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month, and he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month. Do the math. Four months. Why? How could this be so successful? For the gracious hand of his God was on him. Why was that? For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws. In Israel. And so a picture emerges in this summary of this huge decision, this momentous event in the life of Israel, really, spiritually. And a picture begins to emerge how God works in specific and how God's people will recognize God is working specifically. It's this little sequence we see in verses 9 and 10. So Ezra successfully arrives in Jerusalem. And the issues that have been raised are, they did it in four months, which happens to be in the heat of summer, traveling some 900 miles. The group arrives safely. He, brings, he is re- able to recruit qualified people to serve in the temple. It, it all came together. Why? Because God's gracious hand was on him. So God's hand was guiding this process. Why is that? Because Ezra studied, obeyed, and taught God's word. He's a man of God's word, and he was listening for how God would guide him. Even though God never sent a prophet to Ezra to say, go to Jerusalem. We find nothing. God did that at times in the Old Testament. He could have, but he didn't. Instead, Ezra made this decision 
Those last two issues, let's think about those a little. God's gracious hand and Ezra's commitment to God's word. God's hand refers to his control. That's what a hand does, controls you know, steering wheels and gear shifts, right? A parent's hand controls young children. And so a parent can take their young child at a parade and lift the child up so they can see what's going on. At the same parade, the hand can restrain the child who might have ignorantly dashed into the road and gotten hurt in the parade, but the hand is guiding that child. Now we know a parent's hand can also uh, harm and uh, be used wrongly. Uh, uh, An adult hand can type an angry email and press send when you should. Uh, A hand can punch someone in the face when you're angry. All kind of negative things that a hand can do. But what kind of hand of God do we see in verse 9? What's the word you have? Good or gracious, right? So we know what we have learned from really chapter 6, the goodness of God. It is a good hand of God that is in charge of the circumstances of our life. Sometimes the good hand and gracious hand of God is like that parent that is preventing the child from running into the road. It seems like a really fun thing for the parent to lift the child to enjoy the parade, but the hand of the parent is good whether he's giving the child something fun or restraining him from something he would think is fun but it's actually kept him from danger. So we have to understand that the good hand of God sometimes prevents us from things for our benefits. Because those can be very hard things. But sometimes the good hand of God is preventing something. Ezra is absorbed in the goodness of the hand of God. So he repeats it. He stresses it. So if you embrace this view of God as good and, and his hand is good, how do we make decisions that are good? That's that bottom layer of the triangle, the pyramid. Be a person committed to the word of God. Ezra devoted himself to the study, observance, and teaching. It's interesting. It says that he devoted himself. Do you know that if you are going to be a person that knows the word of God, you cannot rely on others? Those will be continual daily decisions that you make to devote yourself to God's word. You can't be force-fed. Maybe your parents bring you to church. They're trying to help prime the pump. But it's going to be you that decides to devote yourself. What does it look like to be devoted to the Word of God? There are three issues. Interesting sequence. This, this is how God uses, multiplies His Word. We need to study it. We need to do it, obey it. And then we need to pass it on and teach it to others. So there's a sequence of knowing what's in the Bible. And that needs to be a lifelong process because you add line upon line, study upon study, personal study, hearing it, discussing it. You need to know it. Then you need to say to your, you have to have a heart that says, if I know what God wants, I will do it. And then a a key sign of maturity is when you realize, wow, this is important. I want to make sure that I am involved in multiplying this in the life of somebody else, my child, someone else's child, a friend, and that's, that's where we get connected to the body of Christ because we want to make sure the Word of God continues to make that impact. 
So if you're going to make good decisions, because you have a heart to make right decisions, there is a sequence that just seems to make sense. In fact, we see these pieces in, in Ezra's life. So we're going to kind of just walk through the, the thought process of Ezra of, of what he did to make this decision life-changing for him and all who would go with him to go from Persia where they were under a favorable king, prosperous, and travel all those miles like, their, like a previous generation did uh, 80 years ago uh, and go back to Jerusalem. Why would, how could they make that decision? The first one we see here is that the question, am I committed to knowing and obeying God's word? Um, if you think through this process, it's not because he was debating between a right and wrong decision. He had settled that. The hard decisions are often when it's not a right and wrong. You just want to know what is the, the thing that's wise that God wants you to do. And Ezra believed that God would guide him in that way. But the first decision was, well, I, if there's something biblical, something in the scripture that I would know, Ezra would know that because he was devoted to the word of God. The second part of the decision, though, is sometimes to consider this. What natural advantages or opportunities do I have? Ezra, we were told in those first five verses, was from the priestly line. He began to think, I'd imagine, I'm of the priestly line. I have the, the, the authority, the, the, the privilege that I had nothing to do about with of being a part of the priestly line. I'm born in Persia, though, and so... I don't really have an opportunity here to function as a priest. So, so what do I do? I have a potential. I have a privilege. I have an advantage. Is God giving me an opportunity? We are not born into everything, but we are born into some things. Most of you were born in America, right? There's some advantages right there. I think as, as Americans, we, we are responsible for some of the advantages uh, we have. We're accountable. You may have been uh, born with uh, certain financial resources because of your, your parents. You may have been born with the opportunity to go to certain skills or get certain training. You may have been uh, born with the advantage of just the people you know or the people your parents knew. There's just all those kind of things that you had nothing to do with, but they are natural advantages or opportunities. Ezra believed that happened because of God's hand. So before this decision ever came up, God's hand had been working that Ezra was who he was, some natural advantages. But there's more to it than that. Another question would be, what natural abilities, developed skills, or spiritual gifts from God do I have? So, kind of lumping those all together at this point, Ezra had some natural abilities, we can assume. The kind of leadership he displays here, some people have certain leadership abilities. Uh, the uh, ability to study well. He's well-versed in the scriptures. Some are going to be more well-versed because of, of, of just the way their, their minds are, 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 are wired and others can, can do things with their hands that others can't do or, or whatever it might be. Personality traits. Some are developed skills. Um, maybe you developed some skills because your parents 
had those skills and they passed them on to you. Maybe you went into the service and they trained you to do something with uh, technology or, or you had certain jobs. You, you have developed certain skills. And so you begin to realize these are things God has equipped me with. In addition, there's that remarkable biblical truth of spiritual gifts. Uh, a study I'd urge you to do, there's some four passages in the New Testament that list different kinds of spiritual gifts, things like teaching, serving, leading, giving, mercy, uh, uh, showing mercy, uh, evangelism, shepherding. In other words, when you become a believer, God has assigned you a task based on some giftedness that he imparts to you. Do you know somewhat? Are you, are you trying to find out where you are going to be most effective? And so Ezra realized that while spiritual gifts may have functioned differently there, he realized he had some natural things. He had some, he had some skills and abilities. And then I think God works through our desires. What desires has God given you? He desired to go to Jerusalem. He desired to exercise his potential spiritually. What do you desire to do? Is your view of God tainted so that you kind of assume if God wants me to do it, it'll be very boring and make me miserable? Seriously, is that what you think of God? That he would say, oh, I know, Sid, he's gonna, I'm going to make him do stuff he just would not like to do. Sure, there's going to be hard things. But wouldn't you suppose that a good and gracious hand of God would guide us into things that would delight and challenge and invigorate us? Yeah, it's going to be hard. It's the kind of hard where we go, yeah, that's, I'm supposed to be working at this. Maybe the ultimate test, though, is this one. Am I pursuing godly purposes? Do I, do I know that, that my life is being used in ways that I am having an impact for biblical, godly purposes? Obviously, for uh, Ezra, he was going to teach God's Word. Now, you realize one of the reasons he taught God's Word is because people didn't have Bibles. I mean, this, is, this is at a time when uh, you didn't all have your own copy. You relied on a few select copies that the scribes would have. And so he would have to both read and interpret and, and communicate that. Uh, you realize you have, if you have, a, if you have a, a phone, you probably have access to dozens of English translations on a single app like YouVersion or something like that. Feel free to download that while I continue. Uh, and so he was well-versed. And he says, I want to teach. He really wanted to teach in, in Jerusalem. But did he wait to get to Jerusalem to teach the Word of God? What does it say? Verse 7 says he was well-versed. Verse 10 says uh, he had devoted himself to study and teach. Past tense. So he was already doing it. He didn't wait to exercise his passion and his gift till he got to some place. He did it where he was in Persia. Where do you suppose he taught in Persia? Probably homes. But something developed during those years that we discover in the New Testament, in the Gospels. Something called synagogues. Synagogues were not about a building. Synagogues were about a group. They had to have ten men to form a synagogue. And that's where the teaching 
would go on. It could be that Ezra himself may have been the real impetus to getting synagogues going. And so he began to gather people together because here's the passion that was on his heart. This is the timeless word of God. We can't let this die out just because we happen to be away from Jerusalem. We need to keep teaching. Churches today have really so many parallel purposes with the reason synagogues were formed. 2 Timothy 2.2, Paul said to Timothy, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, so Paul to Timothy, entrust to faithful men who will teach others also. Paul to Timothy to faithful men to others. That's what we do. As we, we call ourselves Open Door Bible Church, so much of what we are devoted to do is to make sure that the Word of God will keep being taught. This week, we will hold two funeral services of those who can no longer be an encouragement to others, but they have been. Someday that'll be me. Someday that'll be you. But you know what? The Word of God can keep going because we're communicating it to the next generation, the next generation, and the next generation, and the Word of God will abide. We can be confident of that We want to be involved in that. One of the reasons we've called this campaign in recent years Multiply is we want to multiply disciples because we know that it has to go on. It has to continue. So how did Ezra know? He was supposed to make this momentous decision for himself and bring so many families along. Well, he was committed to knowing God's word, and he realized as a priest he had some opportunity, and he had some abilities, and he had this passion and desire to go and exercise those, and they were godly purposes. So he did it. And we see, and he saw, how God's hand was involved in that. And so now what we see in the rest of this chapter is a letter from King Artaxerxes an authorization letter that he gave to Ezra for this trip. And in the midst of this letter, we see exactly how God's hand was working. So verse 11 says, This is a copy of the letter King Artaxerxes had given to Ezra, the priest and teacher, a man learned in matters concerning the commands and decrees of the Lord for Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, He had a pretty good view of himself, right? To Ezra the priest, the teacher of the law of the God of heaven, greetings. Here it starts. Now I decree that any of the Israelites in my kingdom, including priests and Levites who wish to go to Jerusalem with you, may go. You are sent by the king and his seven advisors, cabinet kind of a thing, to inquire about Judah and Jerusalem with regard to the law of of your God which is in your hand. You're you're carrying a scroll, and I understand you're going to check on people spiritually. The first spiritual purpose that Ezra had was the care of those people that had gone decades earlier. How were they doing? I assume he knew that they had gotten the temple rebuilt, 
But there wasn't this constant interaction of how your missionaries are doing. So, so it's checking on them. Are they obeying the laws of God? And he must have made that clear to the king because that's what the king says. You're authorized to go and check on them spiritually. Second purpose. He's going there to worship and lead worship. Moreover, the king says, you are to take with you the silver and gold that the king and his advisors have freely given the God of Israel whose dwelling is in Jerusalem. So the king and his cabinet make donations for this trip. Together with all the silver and gold you may obtain from the province of Babylon, you can get more donations from other people here in Babylon, as well as the free will offerings of the people and priests for the temple of their God in Jerusalem. With this money, be sure to buy bulls, rams, male lambs, together with their grain offerings and drink offerings, and sacrifice them on the altar of the temple of your God in Jerusalem. So, his purpose was spiritual care. His purpose was worship. He had communicated that, and God put it in the heart of this, what I believe to be otherwise a pagan king, said, go do it. You and your brother Jews, verse 18, may then do whatever seems best with the rest of the silver and gold. If there's leftover, do anything you want in accordance with the will of your God. That's a great spiritual stewardship. You can do anything you want to with your money according to the will of God. (laughs) Gives a different perspective, right? Deliver to the God of Jerusalem all the articles entrusted to you for worship in the temple of your God. I don't think this refers to the vessels that Nebuchadnezzar had taken many centuries before, or decades before. Those were returned in the first return under Zerubbabel. So evidently they were donating other kinds of dishes, basins, bowls, or something to go help the ministry there. And verse 20, anything else needed for the temple of your your God that you may have occasion to supply, you may provide with tax money from the royal treasury. If this sounds familiar, this is so much of what Cyrus had told him all those years before. Now I, King Artaxerxes, order all the treasurers of trans-Euphrates, those are his officials, that they will meet along the way on this journey to provide with diligence whatever Ezra the priest, the teacher of the law of God of heaven, may ask of you. Up to a hundred talents of silver, a hundred cores of wheat, a hundred baths of wine, a hundred baths of olive oil, and salt without limit. Whatever the God of heaven has prescribed, that it be done with diligence for the temple of the God of heaven." Uh, This doesn't seem to necessarily be things just for worship, but very likely what they would need on this journey, taking several thousand people, as you travel, you're going to need some money along the way. When you get to the treasurers at the different outposts, just show them my letter. They'll give you money. Uh, There's kind of a max, there's a credit limit here. And you can have this much groceries, this, this, and this that you're going to need as you... It's like you're traveling with Dad's credit card, you know? Just insert the chip. Dad's going to pay the bill. And now we start to see something in the mind of this king. Why should there be wrath against the realm of the king and of his sons? You are also to know that you have no authority to... He's telling his people through this letter... You have no authority to impose taxes, tribute, or duty on any of the priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, temple servants, or other workers at this house of God. So there was uh, some kind of a uh, similar Persian mentality about religion, kind of like American religious institutions have uh, tax-exempt status. So we discover God is very generous 
with those who want to serve him. God is very generous. I don't know of anyone who has given time, money, effort to serve God's purpose that has not found God's hand powerful on their behalf and generous to supply. Ezra was motivated by the word of God and this whole series of this thought process. And we kind of get it. There's a, there's a clear God motive behind Ezra. What's kind of intriguing is to think, so what was motivating Artaxerxes? I don't assume him to be a believer. Uh, he seems to be a polytheist, many gods, which is the worldview of that time. The references to God are all about your God. Not necessarily the God or the God of heaven. Uh, Cyrus was a bit different uh, in his character spiritually. So what motivated him? Did you catch that one in verse uh, 23? One motive was, why should there be wrath against the realm of the king and of his sons? He had a fear, respect, but kind of this negative fear that whoever the God is of this people, he's pretty strong. I don't want him against me. I want him on my side. And God used even this fear to make him favorable to God's people and God's purposes. So that's one motivation. Another motivation that historians tell us about is uh, if, you put it, if you look on a map, you've got Persia, Israel, and on the other side down here is Egypt. Egypt is the other, the second biggest empire. If there's any threat, if there's any concern of a, of a rival kingdom to Persia, it'd be Egypt. And the Persians would be happy to have Israel along the way on their side. So politically, international politics, he would be motivated. So a fear of God's judgment and then also a political advantage. And you, you could probably say on the positive side, the king seems to have liked Ezra. Uh, you can't, if, if, if the king didn't like Ezra, can you imagine him saying these things? He liked him, so, so evidently Ezra... Uh, had created a positive impression, had a good testimony, we would say, uh, that can be responsible for some of those favorable conditions and laws. It kind of uh, implores us to, don't be a Christian jerk, you know, insisting on rights, and this is my, and this is, and, and, and you can end up, too many Christians end up unlikable. So, a favorable impression. All these things. So, so while Ezra is motivated by a love for God and his word, Artaxerxes is motivated, we not sure, but they're natural kind of motives. And God weaves this whole thing together in his perfect sovereign plan with shaping circumstances before this great decision to go to Jerusalem and controlling decisions we'll see after. And God puts it all together. Verse 25, the rest of this, this letter is fascinating. And you, Ezra, in accordance with the wisdom of your God, which you possess, that he knew, appoint magistrates and judge, judges to administer justice to all the people of Trans-Euphrates, that's 
whole area, including Israel, all who know the laws of your God. So I, I authorize you to, on my behalf, appoint magistrates. The first term probably refers to local elders who settle local issues. The second term, judges, uh, seems to be more of a term expressing uh, somebody who is making decisions for the state, more like a federal judge. And so you see Ezra with the privilege now to fix injustices on a local level and to even impact Persian affairs from a godly perspective. Isn't it great when you see sincere Christians involved in, in winning running and winning for political, political offices or, or really just having impact in any area where, where they, are, they, are, they are using their skills and ability to impact and honor God by their testimony and work. It's almost overwhelming how good God's hand is. And then, <laughs> I chuckle at verse 6, Artaxerxes writes, Whoever does not obey the law of your God and the law of the king must surely be punished by death, banishment, confiscation of property, or imprisonment. It doesn't say Ezra ever did those things, but it's just kind of a foreign king's way of, and make sure that they all do what God's word says, and if not, you can execute them, you can kick them out of the country, you can take all their stuff, you can put them in prison, whatever you want to do. Not exactly a grace-filled ministry, but... So Ezra would have an incredible impact. If there's a main point woven through is that God, God's guidance is given in God's way. When we commit to doing God's will, he shapes circumstances and directs our decisions to accomplish his will. It just makes sense. To think like God thinks the conclusion is that if we commit to doing God's will, that's, our, that's the passion of Ezra's heart. If that's the passion of your heart, he will shape circumstances. He will direct decisions. And, and eventually it will accomplish his will. It's a messy process sometimes. There's all kinds of turns and, and twists and, and frustrations and struggles. But if we believe what verse 10 says, that his hand is not just controlling. His hand is good. His hand is gracious. We have this confidence. This point is made so well in a passage well known by many. You may have memorized it. Proverbs 3, verses 5 to 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. Or some translations say make your paths straight. comes out to about the same thing. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. So, trusting in the Lord means to rely upon Him to want what He wants. His his purposes become yours. You want His glory, but you believe that He will do what is best for His glory, and He will do what is best for you. Trusting also means to relax. And know that we don't have to fret. It, it, it creates some stress. Every decision does. But there's this peace of knowing that we can trust in the Lord with all our heart. That means, however, the reverse is true. We cannot lean on our own understanding. 
So we're going to back off when we feel that tension between what I want and what I'm pretty sure God wants. We have to have this soft heart of relinquishing with open hands. Yeah, this is not my first choice, God, but I really sense this is... We ought to be able to do that. Don't lean on your own understanding, because you may have had a, a, a habit of, this is what I want, it must be right. And sometimes we say, well, if I wanted, obviously God... Yeah. Don't always trust your desires. They're, they're, that's where prayer and, the, and, and the, the fellowship of the body is so important that we realize that God will direct us sometimes through specific ways as we pray and, and consult with others, even who know us. And so in all your ways, acknowledge him. That's, that's your desire, and he will direct your path. Or he, will, he will make that path work. God delights to help us make decisions when we want to honor him with our decisions. The final two verses of praise tells us the only appropriate response. And we're going to save that and make that part of the, uh, of the next chapter. It really introduces uh, what we'll look at next week. But it begins in verse 7, 27. Praise be to the Lord, the God of our fathers, who has put it in the king's heart to bring honor to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem in this way. And then that's why Ezra had courage to go on this path. Because God had orchestrated this whole process and the hand of God was on him. Most of us have maybe got frustrated with our GPS at some point because it's not infallible and sometimes you know, you end up direct, heading for a pasture or a pond or something. So it's not an ideal illustration, but let's just say GPSs were perfect. Most of the time I find they are very helpful because what it does for me is often surprises me. It just happened this last week. I was heading to someone's house and I, I've been there before and I, I, I know how I think I would have gone up. Oh, I never thought of that. That is quicker. That is better. You, yeah, you can avoid that traffic. And, and so I followed that. And the other thing about GPS working properly is that you can kind of just relax because it will tell you where to turn when you need to know where to turn and when to turn. And so sometimes you're, you're looking at the thing going, ah, I want to know ahead of it. I'll tell you. Some almighty computer is telling you where and when. God's plan is perfect. His directions are perfect. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. And he will direct your paths. And even when it seems we don't know and we come to that final point, it is often later we will see exactly how he has shaped the circumstances and directed our decision to accomplish his good will. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we so need your direction. Little things, big things, they must all be little to you in your almighty power. And so I pray for each one here that uh, whether we're looking back on, on past decisions or future decisions or are in the, in the crux of making a decision, Lord, we know there are still going to be struggles of specifics and, and yet that we would uh, have the heart of a willingness to follow your plan and then to expect to see how that plan all works together. We just commit that process to you in Jesus' name. Amen.